the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Lord Jesus wants to send a worldwide revival 
but there are beliefs and practices that stand in the way of his being able to accomplish that task. Now, I want to look at some of those with Alexandra today. We're Ray and Alexandra from the National Prayer Chapel. You're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I have to tell you, from the time I was a child, there was such an earnest desire in my heart for more of Jesus. Always my heart has longed for more of Jesus. And some of you have not understood when I have said to you on the air, I have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And one of you said to me, Pastor, have you not had ecstatic experiences and and don't you speak in tongues? Well, my answer is, of course, yes, I do. But I have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now that sounds like I'm contradicting myself, but hold on. You'll understand as we move through this broadcast today what I'm talking about. It's very serious. Now today, it's not uncommon for Pentecostal or charismatic churches to teach that if you speak in a tongue, that is, repeating certain syllables over and over, and they'll tell you, keep practicing those syllables, that you have to keep working at it, sounds a little bit maybe like a language it's nothing you ever heard before or anyone else has ever heard before that somehow that means you're baptized in the holy spirit and the emphasis seems to be on that personal ecstatic experience of feeling love and warmth and intimacy with god which of us don't want those feelings i do we all want that that depth with jesus And we have today begun calling that the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is not the historic understanding flowing out of Azusa Street in the early 1900s when the Pentecostal Church was founded. This is not what they believed. And so we need to talk about this. I don't mean to try to take anything away from you. If you've had one of these warm, ecstatic experiences, maybe you've even fallen down, maybe you've spoken some kind of syllable, and you've called it tongues, and everybody has said, oh, that's tongues. Maybe somebody's tried to prime the pump with you and just told you to make baby sounds, that that would result finally in speaking in tongues. I don't want to take away from the warmth and intimacy that all of us are so eager for in Jesus. But I want that warmth and intimacy to not be selfish. I don't want it to be centered in what I want. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was for power and purity. It was fire and wind. It was was to be baptized in power so those disciples could be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. 
Yeah, so we mentioned this because we're speaking today to those of you who do believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but the emphasis needs to, the focus needs to be not just on my own personal spiritual growth, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit must terminate or lead to the work of the gospel, the coming of the kingdom of God on the earth, souls being saved, the fulfillment of the Great Commission. This kingdom takes many forms. The abolition of slavery was a wonderful advance for the kingdom of God in the United States. So we each have a place of service in the kingdom. And I mention this because when Jesus spoke of the baptism, Jesus focused on the power. He said in Acts, this is Acts 1, 5, and 8, Jesus said, For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the disciples were told by Jesus that this power that they were to receive would enable them to be God's witnesses first in Jerusalem, then to all of Israel, and finally, even to the ends of the earth. In other words, they were to receive power to bring God's kingdom everywhere on the planet. Now that is quite some power that we're talking about. And this is the last thing Jesus said to them before he ascended into heaven. We do know that Jesus did speak in other places about the comforter coming and dwelling forever in us. But I think it's significant that the last time Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit before he goes to heaven, when he tells them to wait, he really focuses in on the power. And I suspect that that is because when we speak of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as we see today, there is this tendency to go in a personal direction and to take the focus or the power out of it. Well, let's talk about that just a minute. It is very easy to be sidetracked. The devil does not want you to exercise power in testimony and witness that will change the life of sinner people. The devil doesn't want to give up his power on the earth. His realm. He doesn't want to be kicked out. He doesn't want to be defeated. And he is scrambled in the Christian church to shortcut and destroy the Pentecostal revival. And he has pretty well done that. Yeah, so if he can convince you that you've received everything there is you can possibly receive from God because you can speak some strange language that nobody understands, then he's done a pretty good job of nullifying our influence to advance the kingdom. So the focus, let me try to say this clearly, the focus must be on the power of witness. And so I've asked people who tell me they're baptized in the Holy Spirit, I've asked them, well, does that mean that now you speak to sinners and they are convicted of their sin and you bring them to Jesus? Well, no. And what we mean is not getting someone to say a sinner's prayer and then you never see them again, or not even getting someone to make a habit of reading their Bible or attending church. But when you speak to sinners, do they really totally surrender to Jesus? 
do they have a changed heart and a changed life? And from that point forward, the power of sin has been broken over their life. And they are living a new life free from sin, rejoicing in the love and power of Jesus. That comes from the power from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Other questions you could ask yourself is, are the sick regularly healed when I pray for them? Maybe not every single person, I pray that that would happen, but is it common that you are able to pray for people and have them healed? Do you have the authority to cast out demons? For example, can you say to a drunk person to whom you're witnessing, can you say to that drunk person, in the name of Jesus, spirit of alcohol come out of him and then they're sober or can you say to a person who you meet on the street who is crazy can you say in the name of jesus come out of you come out of you and then have that person become sober and in their right mind that's the kind of power that jesus promised this comes from mark 16 verses 15 through 18 Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. So first of all, notice that these signs are directly connected to going into all the world and preaching the gospel. And secondly, there are five signs mentioned in this passage and tongues is only one of the signs. So if we're baptized in the Holy Spirit, we should expect power beyond merely the gift of tongues. Now let's be clear. We are not saying that ecstatic experiences are wrong or should not happen. I have enjoyed on numerous occasions the presence of the Holy Spirit coming and anointing me, giving me wonderful experiences of reassurance and love and hope. I would not take that away from me or you the great danger is that after you've had that experience, you then begin to pursue having more of those experiences. Let's be real clear. This is not about having ecstatic experiences. This is about Jesus. And any experience that does not draw you first and foremost into the heart of Jesus is not an experience you want. Yes, and the problem is if we begin to pursue these ecstatic experiences and that's the focus of our prayer life or of our private devotional time, then we neglect those around us who are in need of salvation from sin, those who are struggling in bondage to alcohol or drugs who cannot get out on their own. They desperately need a savior. And if we're just focused on trying to have these wonderful, warm feelings, we're missing Jesus's heart, which is to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, what's tragic, 
tragic is the word I want to use. I've been to countless worship services where the pastor has called for people to come forward who want to be baptized in the Spirit or who need prayer. And so people will come forward and the pastor will lay hands on them or wave at them and they'll collapse on the floor and they're covered with a a little modesty blanket, both men and women. And they're told, just soak in the Spirit. Lay there on the floor and soak in the Spirit. Well, where is that in Scripture? That's not biblical. It may feed the ego of the pastor to believe that he's somebody because people fall down when he lays hands on them or pushes them over. But that's not biblical. That's... That's not going to make any significant difference in that person's life. And let me tell you why. And we're going to get into this in depth. If a person is walking in sin, any known rebellion or sin against Jesus, they cannot be baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's just that simple. So if there's not a total emphasis upon holiness and sanctification, then you are not prepared for the true baptism of the Holy Spirit. You may have ecstatic experiences, but you will not be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, so let's speak a little bit more about this question of tongues. So we often hear today people say, if you don't speak in tongues you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now what we'll see, we'll see more in a moment, this belief did come from William Seymour, who started the Azusa Street prayer meeting, which eventually led to the revival on Azusa Street as God did come and baptize them in the Holy Spirit. Now, William Seymour was a Wesleyan holiness man He believed that he had already been first converted and then second sanctified or made holy, and yet he lacked the Pentecost power. And as they looked through the scriptures, they found that everywhere the Holy Spirit came, the people spoke in tongues. So he said, well, we can't assert positively that we've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit if we don't speak in tongues. Now, what's important is that when the people were baptized in the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk more about these incidents in a moment, they spoke in known languages. They spoke in French, in Hindustani, in Chinese. These were just Midwestern Americans. The Holy Spirit fell on them, and all of a sudden they were speaking and writing in these foreign languages. And that was confirmed by native speakers who came to the meetings and could understand what they were saying. So they were clearly speaking with fluency. It wasn't kind of a garbled attempt at the language. So we have to understand when we speak about this speaking in tongues, it is actually a real language that's understood by the hearers. And this is for the purpose, often, of reaching those who do not speak the primary language being spoken in that area, as in the book of Acts, we see that. But it can also be because it brings great glory to God for this power to be poured out. 
So to return to this question of holiness, we cannot be baptized in the Holy Spirit if we are not holy. Now, if we would just stop and think for a minute, we would think, okay, it's the Holy Spirit. He's not the sinning spirit. He's the Holy Spirit. So how could I be sinning and be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Okay, so we see that doesn't make sense if we just stop and think about it. Well, let's go a little bit more in depth. So when we speak about holiness, we're speaking about two basic things. First, we're talking about separation from the world and consecration to God. As you read throughout the New Testament, you often see this theme of separating from the world, coming out and being separate, and consecrating yourself to the service of God, to his kingdom coming. And related to this, in order to be consecrated to the service of God, we must be cleansed from those things which make us unfit for service. So let's talk about these two things briefly. First of all, consecration. This is something that we have to do. I have to willingly choose to dedicate my entire life to serving God and to promoting his kingdom. God cannot do it for me. I have to make that decision. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit then comes as power for service. But if I'm not consecrated to God, there's no need for me to have power for service. Think about it. If I were a restaurant manager, would I walk out on the street and meet some strangers and give them menus and name tags and uniforms? and then think they're gonna somehow walk into my restaurant and start serving people, that wouldn't make any sense. So God's not going to give us power for service unless we have employed ourselves to be used for his service. Now, secondly, there's the cleansing aspect. And the cleansing we're talking about is not from outward acts of sin. It is what has been called an inner cleansing of what has been referred to as the old man, the sinful nature, the flesh. For example, if you find yourself experiencing repeated bouts of unbelief, anger, having uncharitable opinions of others, not thinking the best, not giving people the benefit of the doubt, if you find that you still have racial prejudices or prejudiced thoughts against women, those are all signs of an old man, even if you don't act on them. And the fact that they continually come up, you have to continually fight against them, this greatly hinders our ability to effectively serve Christ. And so the cleansing is necessary of these things. Let me do just a quick theological review of this doctrine of entire sanctification. I'm going to share this from a little book entitled The Rejected Blessing by Pastor Jim Kerwin, K-E-R-W-I-N. He begins, God is holy and he commands his people to be holy by which he means we are to be set apart for him alone and to be made pure in heart and free from sin. 
God in his grace and power provides the means for us to obey this commandment to holiness and the means is so thorough that it even destroys or eradicates the inbred sin nature, the old man, the carnal nature that you were talking about, Alexandra. Many terms, same thing. This is where the doctrine takes on its name entire since sin is dealt with at the root a theological shorthand for this view is the term eradication number three while being free from the sin nature is important it in no way implies instant maturity or towering spirituality it leaves the believer for the first time in his life with the ability to not sin not to be confused with an inability to sin. Number four, the most important aspect of entire sanctification is that the heart's ruling passion is to love God. The book of 1 John speaks about this when the Apostle John says that perfect love casts out fear. And he says, he who fears is not yet made perfect in love. So this entire sanctification is often expressed as heart purity or the love of God filling the heart so that everything else is eradicated. Now, the scriptures depict, or depict sanctification as both a process and an event. That is to say, Christians by grace and obedience will grow in holiness. But there is a time when the soul encounters God and wrestles with the matter of inward purity. Wesley called this a crisis experience. That's why it's often referred to as crisis sanctification. A critical juncture in spiritual life where the Holy Spirit, desiring to take the believer deeper and higher in the walk with Christ, convicts the believer of the need for inner purity. When God grants that purity, the time and place are just as knowable and recordable as one's experience of conversion. Hence the word instantaneous was associated with the experience for although there was a process of sanctification leading up to it and an ongoing process after the event, there was an instant when God the Holy Spirit made the heart pure and sin-free. Now let's be very clear. Wesley is the one who, who developed from scriptures this wonderful truth of heart purity. He in no way meant, nor do we, any type of legalistic effort. We receive heart purity by faith, in the same way we received our new birth by faith. Now let's not be confused either when he says sanctification is an event and a process. After a person is saved, they begin to experience the presence of God in a new way in their life. And they begin to get acquainted with this wonderful Savior who has totally changed them and given them a new birth. And they grow in grace. But this is not gradualism. 
And we're going to speak about gradualism in a moment. Yes. So the easy way to think about it is if I want to grow apples, I first have to plant an apple seed and then it turns into an apple tree and I get some apples. I don't grow apples by having an orange tree and thinking that if I just give it enough time, it'll somehow start producing apples. So that's what we mean when we say that there's a sense in which it's an event that has to start somewhere. There has to be that planting, that initial act of sanctification. And then from there you do grow in that. But you have to first be in it before you can grow in it. You don't grow into it from something else. But sanctification, according to Wesley, two centuries of the church, sanctification does not happen at baptism. They are two separate events. You mean at water baptism? At water baptism. It is associated with Holy Spirit baptism. Different people view this differently, but it is an event. Yes, so very simply, when we are converted, we're born again, we are forgiven for our past sins, we become new people, we stop the outward acts of sin, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, Jesus is with us, we receive a, a measure of the Holy Spirit. And sanctification is that inner cleansing of those things that they still come up, but because when we were converted, we devoted our will to God, we continually say no to those things as they come up. But sanctification actually removes those things so they stop coming up. Now, this is very controversial in the church and we're going to get into why and how that came about yes yeah, so one more thing on the baptism of the holy spirit we find often in the gospel sometimes it is just referred to as the baptism of the holy spirit but on a number of occasions it is referred to as the baptism of the holy spirit and fire so Jesus' promise is not only to baptize us in the Holy Spirit, but to baptize us with fire. And this is where the purity comes in that we've been talking about with sanctification. And so as, as Pastor Ray said, some people have said that this is a three-stage process. Some have said it's a two-stage process. But the point is that that fire has to come. We can't be empowered for service without being holy. So the holiness and the power have to be present at the same time. And it's, it literally means you are crucified with Christ. You don't have a life separate from Jesus anymore. Yes, so what's key here is you may be able to tell me today, you may say, yes, I have had an experience of sanctification. I did experience a second work of grace after, conver after conversion. I know that I have a pure heart. The Holy Spirit bears witness that I have a pure heart. Praise God if that is your case today. Amen. But the question remains, do you have power? If you still don't have power to be fruitful in the service of Christ, then there yet remains a personal Pentecost for you that God wants to give you if you will seek it. Likewise, 
if you say, well, I have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but I still continue to sin, then whatever that experience was that you had, it wasn't the Pentecost baptism of the Holy Spirit. The sin needs to go first. Now, this is so important. How can a sinner, how can a sinner think they are converted, born again, and saved from hell while they continue in their sin? They're blocked from being converted. And so some of you believe you're converted. You believe you've been born again, but you continue to walk in your sin. And so you're now unable to be converted. Yes. And you simply become very religious. And you drift here and there. And your life has never been surrendered to Jesus and you've never been consecrated totally and completely to Jesus. Yes, we bring this up because the big one of the biggest blocks we see to men or women receiving any blessing from God is thinking they already have the blessing when they don't. So if you think, oh, I'm saved, I'm born again, I've been converted, I have a new birth, I'm a new person in Christ, and yet you still sin habitually, often, it's a lifestyle, then this is what the scripture has to say. This is 1 John 3, 8 and 9. He who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy sin. Anyone born of God does not commit sin, for God's seed abides, lives, or remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this it may be seen who are the children of God. So we can recognize whether or not someone is a child of God by whether or not they sin. Now, there's another error that we're likely to fall into, and this one is quite common, is for those who are converted to think that they, were, that they are already sanctified, to think that they were sanctified at conversion, and so they never press on for sanctification. Now, I'll be honest with you, I, I held this belief for some time because I said, well, where do you see in the scriptures that there is this second work? I don't feel like I want to sin anymore. I hate sin. I don't want to sin. And that's true. I do hate sin and I don't want to sin. But I do find myself continually having to say no to certain things that just pop up apparently out of nowhere. And that's what's got to go. Now, where we see it is again in 1 John, same chapter, chapter 3. The Apostle John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, that is when Jesus appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So notice this, the Apostle John is writing to children of God and saying, if we hope in Jesus, then we will purify ourselves so that we're just as pure as Jesus is. So evidently, if at conversion, they had already been made as pure as Jesus was, 
they wouldn't have to be doing this. And he's not writing to sinners. He's writing to Christians, to those who have been born of God, who no longer commit sin. So purification is something that a child of God does, not something that a sinner does, and that places it as subsequent as after conversion. Now, it may not have to be far apart. As we've seen in revivals, it can happen within a few hours, the whole experience. But it is something distinct. Now, as you listen to this, you may say, I'm not making sense. I don't understand this. Don't be surprised. You've got ruts that you've been running down a long time. It's what you've believed. It's how you've lived. But has it taken you where you need to go? It's going to take you time to study the scriptures. What we're sharing with you today is classic Wesleyanism, classic Azuzu Street revival, the founding of Pentecost uh, for America. It was the place where God started a worldwide revival and it was stomped out by the devil. We're sharing these things with you, but there are many who will fight against entire sanctification or entire consecration. John Wesley was kicked out of the Anglican Church. They locked him out. They would not let him preach there because he was teaching that you must leave your sin, all of it, and be sanctified in Jesus. We also have been kicked out of the Anglican Church. We join a a club that's very honored because they said you preach that you must leave all your sin. We believe you sin every day. Well, you must decide. I want the baptism of the Holy Spirit, not the happy spirit, not the sinning spirit. So as we walk through this, listen several times to the broadcast. Begin to pray and grasp these concepts. Yes, so I was sharing the biggest block to receiving any blessing from God is thinking you already have it. Now, what happens first, sometimes sinners think they're born again when they're not. Second, Christians think that they're sanctified when they're not. And third, and this is a strange one, sinners, Christians, or even sanctified people sometimes think they've been baptized in the Holy Spirit because they've had a personal ecstatic experience, because they've spoken in tongues, or because they believe that they were baptized in the Holy Spirit at conversion, which is actually what gotquestions.org says. They say that's part of the, quote, package of salvation. It was all at the cross. That's what they say. So the danger is sinners... Christians, even sanctified people thinking they've been baptized in the Holy Spirit when they haven't. And so as a result, you never actually press on for the Pentecost power. Now the evidence that you have not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that you have no power. 
Acts 1.8, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So if you have not received power, if you have not received the power to be an effective witness for Jesus, then you are in need today of this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we have the wonderful promises of Jesus himself that he is more willing to send the Holy Spirit than anything else. The very crux of the new covenant is that God will come and live and dwell and walk in his people. And so it was God's design. God planned it. Back in the book of Joel, he promised that in the last days this would be fulfilled where his spirit would be poured out on all people. So we have the sure foundation that this is the will of God to give each of us this personal Pentecost and make each of us into an empowered witness in the service of Christ. Now let's look at some of the history of the Pentecostal movement. It will help us to clarify these issues and understand what was actually going on. William Seymour is one of my heroes. This man had a humble heart like Moses. He began in 1870 as he was born in Louisiana. It was reconstruction time. He couldn't read until he was 10 years old. As a child, he was exposed through his family to both Baptist and Catholic influences. He had visions or words from God as a child about his calling on his life. William Seymour grew up in a time of great bitterness and anger between whites and blacks. And there was many reasons, justifiable reasons, for why many blacks were extremely bitter and angry at how they had been treated in life. William Seymour chose another way. He chose not to let bitterness grow in his heart. His hunger was for Jesus. As an adult, he moved to Indianapolis, Chicago, and finally Cincinnati. In all this traveling, he became a part of the holiness movement, first as a Methodist, and then as a member of the Evening Light Saints, pastored by Reverend Daniel Warner. The Evening Light Saints believed in the two works of grace, regeneration, meaning to be transformed and changed into Christ's likeness, the new birth, the new birth, born again, and he believed in entire sanctification. But also that the Pentecost experience was coming. Warner taught that the Holy Spirit was about to be poured out on the saints, that Christ's return was imminent, and that the millennium would then begin. He urged those who were sanctified or holy to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which was power for service. So, William Seymour was schooled in these lessons. I'll tell you what the difference was between William Seymour and many of the others. For Mr. Seymour, it was much more than an intellectual exercise. 
It was the very essence of his life. In 1902, Seymour contracted smallpox during an epidemic. He was 32 years old. He spent three weeks sick and nearly died. The disease left him almost totally blind in his left eye and with scarring on his face. But this experience was also a catalyst for Seymour to give up his life as a hotel waiter, which was considered to be a very good job at that time for him, and to finally accept what he felt God had been calling him to for a long time, which was to live his life as a preacher. At about this time, Seymour was sanctified at one of the evening meetings. He came to the altar once, left, and then returned a second time and refused to leave until he felt assurance that he had received the blessing, the second blessing. Now others besides the evening light saints were also praying for this personal Pentecost experience. One such group, students and a teacher named Charles Parham, P-A-R-H-A-M, Parham, who headed a Bible school in Topeka, Kansas. They prayed earnestly for the Holy Spirit baptism and also asked specifically for the sign of tongues, which they understood to be another known human language. In January of 1901, 34 students were praying when a young lady from Nebraska received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And for the next three days, she could only speak or write in Chinese. Whenever she attempted to write, her hand would produce nothing but Chinese character. Before long, the baptism spread to the rest of the students, all American. Among all 34 of them, they spoke 21 known languages, all verified by native speakers who came to one of the many meetings at which Parham and the students spoke over the next few weeks. Parham saw this gift of tongues as revolutionizing world missions. All the missionaries had to do was receive this gift, and all the language barriers would vanish. Yes, and you remember that these Christians were praying for a worldwide revival. They believed that they were truly in the very last of the last days and that it was time again for the church, for Christians, to be individually filled with the Holy Spirit and for the entire world to hear the gospel and to be converted. And so he would see this as a wonderful gift because now we can quickly accomplish the work of evangelizing the world. We don't have to spend years trying to learn the language of the country. Now, after this experience in January 1901, this experience did not just fizzle out and end. They didn't just say, okay, we spoke in tongues. That was a wonderful personal experience. But instead, this baptism of the Holy Spirit on the 34 students kicked off travel, missionary work, and revivals. Now, some of the places where they went, they had more success than others. Some places they met with horrible failure. But they did see a powerful revival in Galena, Missouri. 
within six months, over 1,000 individuals had been healed and 800 souls were saved. At the end of 12 months, their prayer meetings were drawing 2,500 people, and on a single night, hundreds would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So note here that the gift of tongues which these students received did not come by itself. The gift of tongues was part of the Pentecost baptism, which also included miraculous, instantaneous healings, the salvation of sinners, others being baptized in the Holy Spirit, in short, what we would call revival. Also note that the gift of tongues was secondly, actual languages. They were not repeating the same syllable over and over for 20 minutes. And these languages were understood by native speakers, so they were able to speak a language they'd never spoken or possibly even heard before with fluency that they could be understood by native speakers. Now this story is significant because Parham would have his life strongly intersect with the life of William Seymour. In 1905, William Seymour traveled to Texas to study at God's Bible School, where Parham was then teaching. Now at this school, Parham was teaching that the second blessing, sanctification, cleansed and purified the believer, while the third, that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, brought power for service. He emphasized speaking in tongues, which were known languages, he emphasized that this was a sign that always accompanied the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that's where this influence comes from today in the church, with many who say that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit. However, what is typically called tongues today would not have been called tongues by Seymour, by Parham, or by any of these 34 students. Now, this is not to say that Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, he did speak of an ecstatic tongue, a prayer language. We're not saying you should not have a prayer language. But we are saying that the primary emphasis of Scripture is on the baptism of the Spirit for the salvation of the lost. The prayer language is not evidence that you have received the Pentecost baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's only evidence that you've had an ecstatic experience. But it's not with fire and it's not with power. Now we're saying this because we don't want you to stop with some ecstatic experience. We want you to go on in full holiness, be sanctified by the Lord, have the witness of a pure heart, and then move on and be baptized in power and fire for the work of the gospel. Now, we're almost out of time for today. We're going to go further with this in telling you the story of what happened where the church was turned aside by one preacher in a matter of six years. What, what believers had held too preciously from scripture for two centuries was totally wiped out. And today, this man's teaching 
that we'll tell you about tomorrow has destroyed countless millions of people and prevented them from ever going on to the baptism and it's holding back a worldwide revival. So we'll talk about that tomorrow and we'll share that inside story of what actually happened. Now, before we run out of time, I need to tell you, I am so grateful for each of you who has contributed to this broadcast. I can't express with words my gratitude to those of you who have sacrificially given. But as it so happens, we are still $90 short of having enough to pay for the July broadcast bill. We are still $90 short. And you say, well, Pastor, that's not very much. Well, the National Prayer Chapel account has $11 in it. So it's huge. So what we're saying is, look, we need some brothers and sisters to step forward and help us get this radio bill covered. If you'd like to do that, would you call right now, 877-534-0780, and just tell Brother Kevin, look, I'll cover it. It's done. We pray that very quickly this radio bill can be covered. Usually we have to do offertory days, and we've just said, no, it's just $90. We don't want to do an offertory day. But will you help us? Now, you've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. And I'm Alexandra Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. Please visit our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can also go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, and donate online. God bless you. We'll talk to you soon, and we'll share more of this story tomorrow. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.